Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reasoned to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Sincrae he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandra, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And with that said, let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for another Sunday, a Lord's Day, together with our church family, with our Bibles open in our laps. Lord, we ask that you would be the master teacher as we know you to be, and that we be good students and listen, pay attention, and see what it is you would have us know or do or what we need to be. And Lord, we ask these things in your strong name. Amen. Well, it's been two weeks, but where we left the scriptures and where we left Paul, he's right where we left him in Corinth. And if you recall from two weeks ago, Paul was discouraged. He was in a rough place. And we know that by the fact that God came to him in a vision in the night to encourage him, to tell him, basically, you keep speaking, don't be afraid. I have people in this town and souls will be saved. And we talked about how priceless encouragement can be. And there are times where certain people are able to encourage us. This seems to be a case where only the throne room of heaven was sufficient to encourage this missionary. He's in a low spot. Well, he's been encouraged, 
And where we picked up, it seems to run uh, right along, but with a lot of information at a very fast pace, which covers years' worth of time. I don't know if you felt like we got in a time machine and went for years, but we did with what we just read. And in order to keep these three paragraphs uh, organized, here's your heading. There's three ideas. There's more, but this is what we'll use to keep track. First of all, a promise kept. And that's looking back on these preceding verses where God promised, namely, that no one would attack Paul to harm him. Well, he's facing a tribunal here. So we'll see whether or not that promise was kept. Second... There's a vow made. It's kind of tucked in there in a long list of geographical um, time stamps. But what is this business about his haircut, and what does it mean? So we'll, we'll take a few minutes at that. And then third, a teacher taught. We'll spend the bulk of our time here examining what I do believe is a model of excellence in biblical teaching and why that's important. So number one, a promise kept. We're back in verse 12. When Gallio, proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And just to read back the verse in the dream to Paul, this is verse 10. It might be there on the same page. You turn backward one. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So uh, just like Luke, not only can he slow down and spend three or four chapters on the same day, he can also fast forward pretty quick. He also can turn on a dime as far as uh, the, the drama, and that's what takes place here. And what's this all about? What are the charges? Well, the charges are listed in verse 13. These Jews who brought him in before the tribunal, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law good question to ask here is whose law? Because the Hebrews have a law and Rome has a law. They're in Corinth, which is a Roman town. So specifically, whose law are you referring to? be a great question if we're trying to figure this out. And when you get to verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, and this is probably an invitation uh, for your imagination... Yeah, Paul the Apostle standing before a tribunal in one of the worst towns uh, morally in the Roman Empire. And it's the Jews who have brought him in there to see what they can do. And what does Paul say? Nothing. He's interrupted. We don't get to hear from Paul at this situation. I wish we could. Um, I'm sure that there were some things said. I'm sure there were some preliminaries because in a minute we're going to see details that aren't given to us in this summary. But while he's about to speak, Gallio, this is the guy in charge, interrupts Paul to speak to the Jews who are accusing this man of persuading people to worship contrary to the law. And he uses the word if as the first word of his response. Now, if you've brought somebody before some type of magistrate or a judge, or let's just say you rubbed a, a lamp and a genie comes out, and you've got visions of grandeur, this is going to be good, but the first word is if. That's not good, right? Because if is a 
pivot on which to hang something conditional, isn't it? Like if you're a good boy, you, Santa might come, you know, all that stuff from a few weeks ago that we tell our adult friends and boss. And No, that's just for really little kids that we tell later that that's all made up, right? Or do you? I just thought I'd agitate you a little bit in this sermon. There's not a lot of agitation in here. So you're smart people. You figure that stuff out and what I meant by it, right? Look back at the text. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, which is my business. I have authority of Rome. I can take care of vicious crimes. I can take care of wrongdoing. I would have reason to accept your complaint, but that's worse than if. Since it's a matter of questions and words and names and your own law, Gallio saw right through it because it's not the first time a group of Jews bring someone in to a Roman authority wanting to disappear them. This is exactly the way it went when they went to who? Pilate. And they said, you know, you have laws against this. And then at the end, when it looked like it's slipping out of their hands, they say, we have no king but Caesar, which is blasphemous. You can't say that if you're a self-righteous Jew. Or can you? So they go in there trying to appeal to Roman law and say that what he's doing is against their religious rulings. doesn't fit your pantheon. But Gallio sees right through it. He's the proconsul. He's the man in charge. He's the authority of Rome. And bottom line, he simply doesn't want to be bothered by what doesn't concern him, so he throws the case out. And it was general Roman practice up to this point to not interfere in religious matters unless it was a threat to Rome. So when you see in verse 16, he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized this guy named Sosthenes and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. Unfortunately, we know very little, if anything, as to the background of what those two verses mean. We don't really know who Sosthenes is, though there is a Sosthenes mentioned later in relationship to Paul and his ministry. Could be the same guy, but doesn't necessarily mean it's the same guy. And then who's doing the beating? Because the Greek doesn't point back sufficiently to any of the other groups already mentioned. It could have been uh, the tribunal that asked for it. It could have been the mob uh, outside. It could be the town. It could be the Jews. We don't know, so we don't know if he's in trouble. Now, if this is uh, Gallio, who was known from his writings to be anti-Semitic, he doesn't have a case against this man, Paul, and he doesn't care. But he's not going to step in the way of the synagogue's settling business if Sosnesis, that's a, there's S's and bad. It's like the word from two weeks ago, the isthmus. It's just tough to say. At least it is for me. But if that's the case, and this guy is Paul's companion later, maybe he was saved. And maybe they beat him as an example. But the bottom line is the last part of it. But Gallio paid no attention to any of it. Like Pilate didn't pay any attention to any of it and got a bowl and washed his hands. They've got their lane. They see the Jews as having their lane. You stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. 
Now, we shouldn't miss the magnitude of what that means for Christianity because there's one more legal precedent for Rome not caring who the Christians are. The Jews care about it. They think they're wrong. But as far as Rome's looking, it all looks the same. Now, that would change, but this gives clearance for years' worth of ministry. There will be court hearings, but Rome's not going to do anything about it, at least not for now. So I think that we can say that's a great place to say this is a promise kept. God didn't promise Paul he wouldn't have problems, but he did promise him you're not going to be harmed here, and he wasn't harmed here. When Rome could have if they'd wanted to. So let's look at a vow made, point number two. In addition to a promise kept, there's a vow made, but let's move through this quickly because, again, there's not a lot here. A lot of it seems to just be a transitional journey through what would amount to 1,500 miles or so worth of a journey that would take months, if not years. From verses 18 to 23, there's a lot of stamps along the way, but verse 18 sets sail for Syria along with Aquila and Priscilla, but cut his hair first. That's the indication of this vow and what it might have to do with. Verse 19, he arrives in Ephesus leaves Aquila and Priscilla, reasons in the synagogue, which is his M.O. That's what he always does. Verse 20 and 21, he declines to stay there, but will return if God wills. And there's a lot to say about him and Ephesus. He departs Ephesus, and then in verse 22, lands in Caesarea, goes up to greet the church. If you're looking at a map, that might be confusing, but remember that up was uh, geographically. You know, up is in this way, not up to say uh, Danville or Lynchburg from here or down uh, to say the coast. Um, this would be in elevation and then also down to Antioch again in elevation. And then verse 23 sums it all up. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia strengthening all the disciples. So what you've got there is a description of what will be the third missionary journey. We've gone through the first. We're working on the end of the second. This is the beginning of the third. And um, Paul will end all three, the third, on a beach in Acts chapter 20. We'll get there by the end of the month. But that'll be several years later as far as the story. So a lot of that... if. I mean, good grief. Unless you've visited places or you were born in a place, usually geography, especially a list like that, sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Unless you've been there, you know somebody there. Except for one little part out of the middle of it all, a haircut that had to do with a vow. What does that mean? We don't know. The closest guess that we've got is Judges chapter 6. Do you remember Judges chapter 6 from a few summers ago? Who's the famous guy in Judges 6, 7, and 8? Samson. Now, he took a Nazarite vow, and he couldn't do what? No grapes, wine, no dead animals, and no cutting his hair. Now, what did he do with all those? <laughs> he didn't pay him any mind. It cost him. Samson's probably... 
the, the height of natural and supernatural ability in all of the Bible, but absolutely and totally squandered because he couldn't say no to himself. Now, in this case, you've got a man uh, who has been through three missionary journeys and at the conclusion of all three still insists or describes himself as a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee in Acts 23. We, we think of Pharisees as the bad guys, you know, complete with the, the Star Wars music when they all march in in their white outfits, right? Not really. They were wrong because they didn't see Jesus as who he was. But a Pharisee just meant that they kept all this law to a T. Paul was a real Pharisee, the good kind. And he saw that as important. And a lot of that stuff would only fall off after a long time. It kind of gives a little bit of extra understanding to the conflict between Christians who are Gentiles and don't need to do any of that and Jewish Christians who still do. So if you've been through all these things and you want to thank the Lord for his provision along the way, what do you do? If you're a Pharisee, you make a vow. This was not strange in any stretch talking about Pharisees. Us? Yeah, that'd be weird. Somebody came to the office and said, I'm thinking about doing a vow. Um, Show me in Scripture what I'm supposed to do. I tell you, well, we got a little bit here and a little bit there, but um, you go into the traditional writings of Hebrew, you've got lots about it. So it's strange to us, but it's not strange to this passage. So for a lifelong Jew... Thanking his Savior for a kept promise, that's probably what this is about. He cuts his hair. The vow is over. He'd kept the vow, and then it had run its course. So let's go to number three, a teacher taught. And this is where we'll spend most of our time. There's not a huge amount here, but there's, there's at least one really good lesson. That's what we'll take home with us today. I had mentioned this part earlier as a model of excellence in biblical teaching. Do we need excellence in biblical teaching? Yes. Do we need models? Yes. Does our culture these days value models? Not like it used to. Um, in fact, heroes has is, is gone from the idea of a... Of a of a soldier perhaps who'd give their life so that others may live to somebody that can do all kinds of crazy stuff in a Marvel movie. Um, definitions change among time. And, and these days, over, over the, the Christmas break, sat down with someone who's in ministry and they, they told me something that, that I was aware of, but I didn't know to what extent. I had known that for decades, the most requested song for a a funeral is I Did It My Way by Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra. But that's across the pond in Europe. It's been gaining popularity here in the States and is almost at the top. And this person that I talked to in ministry had said he'd been asked three times this past year for that song and had refused it outright each time. And just the idea that and this is a church funeral in a church building in what we call a sanctuary where all we do is worship God in here, nothing else, but we're going to stop the middle of the service and then sing, I did it my way. 
What did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. I mean, you couldn't get a more antithetical disjunct. But that's, that's our culture. That's how we think these days. I will do this my way. Bible says, no, you need a model. And it needs to be a good model. There's bad models too. And the Bible's full of models. In fact, the guy who's, who's talking here, or we're, we're reading, Luke is talking about Paul. Paul's the one that told Timothy, follow me while I follow Jesus. I'm doing my best. I don't mind if you do your best behind me. And that's a good thing. But who is Paul following? That'd be Jesus. So ultimately, Timothy's following Jesus. It's just Paul's between the two of them. So here, Apollos is the model and teaching, specifically teaching the Bible, is on display. Some think that Apollos is among the most neglected in the New Testament as far as his contribution. I don't believe that because I believe the Bible is exactly what we were supposed to get, the way we were supposed to get it. So he's, he's not neglected because it's the Bible, right? Um, there isn't much said about him anyway. Uh, ten verses in the whole Bible, almost all, are just reference. But what is said of this man, here's the important part, is not said of anyone else in Scripture. You won't say, you see some of these things said about him, said about others, but not all of them. So here's your list, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandra, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. There's five of them. It won't take us long to get through it. And on our way, Alexandria was the home to over a million Jews. That's North Africa. Had a library. Uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. That's where this guy comes from. The following statements are better understood as commendations. Ways in which this man's behavior was commendable. He was an eloquent man. That's the first one. For Greeks to speak eloquently. And we've got to be fair. We can't use what eloquence would be to modern Americans. We've got to know what Greeks thought of eloquence, because that's what's being said here. Well, for Greeks, it was a means of speaking orderly words from an orderly mind such that it made orderly sense in the minds of those who were listening. If a guy can sort things out in a complex idea, put it on a shelf where everybody can grab it, assemble it in their head, and go, ah, that's eloquence. We would just call it, the man can communicate. <laughs> nobody's sleeping. Nobody's wishing they were somewhere else. Uh, everyone's involved, engaged, listening. Uh, kind of like some of those TED Talks you watch where the whole room's just hanging on everything, whether it's good or not. But it's interesting, right? So on a very basic level, it captures the attention and conveys information. It was a public quality. It doesn't do you any good to be eloquent in, the, in your study alone, does it? Now, if you've got time to order things in that study and then come out a bit with the ability to explain it, then publicly you share that with others. It's, it's a public quality. So add to eloquence competence in the Scriptures. KJV translates that mighty, if you've got a King James <laughs> Other translations, you may see the word powerful. The reason for that is because the original word is dunatos, which later we would 
use that word to name an explosive called dynamite because dynamite's very powerful, right? Well, before there was ever dynamite, the Greeks used a word for powerful. He's saying competent, powerful, mighty, all of those work. What happens when an eloquent speech from an ordered mind is brought to bear on an explanation of spiritual truth? Then you've got listeners being moved. You've got the listener going, you mean it means that? And then they start to be less of themselves and more of the author who wrote the Bible, which would be God himself. So if you take that a step further, eloquence with competence, you've got a speaker-audience relationship. And in, the, in a church, the case would be a pastor and congregation. If you do that long enough, you can likely build a mutual trust, couldn't you? These pastors are going to put on a good meal, and we can come and we can consume that meal, and we'll use the nutrients from that meal to carry out the business for which we were born. It's not rocket science, but over time it can work. It's not built in a day, and it should be maintained. And then add another, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord means he wasn't born that way. He possessed an understanding of the way of the Lord. He knew about Jesus. How? Well, obviously somebody taught him and instructed him. Again, this is different in America. We, we as parents delegate pretty much all the education for our children. Sometimes Christian homes will delegate that to their children's ministry instead of their own home or floor or at the foot of the children's beds or wherever you teach your children, like the Bible tells you it's your responsibility. Um, with Hebrew, it was a lifestyle, total comprehensive. Deuteronomy 6, thou shalt teach these things to your children. Diligently teach them to your children. When you walk in the way, when you lie down and rise up, on and on and on. Uh, so Hebrews versus Americans, they're going to look at this from a different angle, but we should look at it like we see it in Scripture. And I thank the Lord for instructors. I wouldn't be standing here in front of you without instructors. No one instructs without having been instructed. Uh, there's somebody that prepared Apollos to use the gifts God gave him. And there wouldn't be an Apollos without an instructor. I am especially, and we should all be eternally thankful for instructors of children in the home and in the church. Because there's one thing that will spell the absolute uh, death of, of this church or any church. And that is that we somehow find ourselves where the Hebrews did in Judges. And there arose a generation which knew not the God of their fathers. Now, they might still gather here and scratch each other's backs and network for business, and have a good time, and find some folks to entertain them. But if they forget what it means to listen to someone break down the Scriptures such that they can learn them and then use them, if we cease to be a church that's absolutely wrapped around the teaching of God's Word... And the next generation fails to understand what it means, it's over.
But in this case, we see it working well. And then, let's see, we got two or three more. And being fervent in spirit, fervency is not personality, it's activity. It's mindful of need and busy to meet it. Ever know somebody who sees a need and they just can't rest till they fix it? Ever know anybody that sees a piece of dirt on the floor and can't walk past it? There's only a few people out of a hundred that way. But don't you like that kind of person? Maybe not in your own home. But that they do exist and they pick up stuff. In your own home, they kind of look at you like, you're crazy. But there are some. This man's fervent in spirit. He sees a need, and that is wide open birth to speak the scriptures. So he's going to speak them if it kills him. Matthew 9, Jesus is bothered by a crowd that seemed like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? He tells his disciples to pray earnestly. It's not the only time he prays like that or asks them to do that because Jesus knows something about his children. If you'll pray about something, you'll be busy with it. If you don't pray about something, you probably don't care about it. But you can't pray for a person. You can't pray for a task. You can't pray for your children to know the scriptures and then let somebody else do it. You will be busy doing the things that you pray about. And much of the content of the New Testament letters are written in reaction to problems that bothered their authors. Well, Jude's one of my favorites. I'd love to talk to you about all this stuff, but I have to talk about this it's a problem. Paul just, all the lovely greeting, and then he just takes them to task about the problems. He even mentions names in some of them. You two people, knock it off. You're bothering the church. We can fix this stuff. So he's being fervent in spirit and then getting very technical here. Spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Some translations use the word diligently. It's a little less than is there in the Greek. We wouldn't want to misunderstand and think of it only in terms of effort. There's precision mixed in that word too. And it's precision that takes the effort. Some of you all know we're in the process of building a house, right? Some of you probably know that there's different ways to go about that. You can do it the right way or you can do it the less than right way, right? I mean, there's a way to complete a task and do it right. Then there's a way to complete a task, do it right, and do it fancy. You don't always have to do it fancy, but when I, the way I was raised... You do it right if, if you're going to do it at all. If it takes you all your whole life, but don't do something, you're not going to finish and do it right. At least that's the idea. And if we're going to be talking about God's Word, we're going to do our best. Second um, Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. That's Awana, what, 101? Do it right. And then he spoke boldly in the synagogue. Now, that's not in his description. This is a sixth thing. Of all the stuff that was said so far, I think I'd like to be able to be said when I'm gone. Well, at least he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But during this man's ministry, he spoke boldly in the synagogue. And there's that word boldly again. We talked about bold. Paul spoke bold. Stephen spoke boldly. A lot of these apostles spoke boldly. Some of the, the Hellenized Jews spoke boldly. Greeks were speaking boldly. 
this is a third or fourth time our culture is just not like this. Boldness is not a virtue anymore. We, we, we used to be, you feel like, and it makes you feel old, that the United States used to pride itself in being the one place on the planet we had free speech. Um, right or wrong, free speech. We lost cases where we thought, well, you know, we wish they would stop speaking about that stuff in their publications, but hey, it's a free speaking country. Nowadays, there's a whole lot of stuff that culturally you don't want to talk about. Um, it's not good. Countries that tend that way tend to not end well. I can remember because I was so shocked listening to it, sitting in Israel at a table. This was at a, in a government uh, place there in, in Jerusalem. And there was a journalist from the newspaper in Jerusalem who's Arab. And he was there to address to the rest of us. As an Arab in Jerusalem working for this paper, I can say whatever I want, including disagreeing with the prime minister of Israel. But my family in Gaza can't. In fact, if they spoke badly about who's in charge of them, they go straight to jail. So whatever you need to tell whoever you tell when you go back home and go to your nation's capital, tell them free speech is worth a lot. Speaking boldly is free speech. Doesn't mean that it won't cost you doesn't mean that somebody might not throw you in jail. But when you speak boldly from this book, it's on authority of its author. And that's the throne room of heaven. And whatever happens to you, it'll turn out. And if they kill you for it, God will raise you from the dead. That's what we believe. So standing in front of people, even those who don't want to hear what you have to say, boldness is free speech. It might be worrisome. It'll be difficult with much anxiety. What did Paul say? With fear, trepidation. But he still speaks. And that's what this man's doing. Speaking boldly in the synagogue. And then here's the thing we're going to take home with us. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Wait a second. I thought he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Well, he did. But it seems like he didn't know at all because if you look in verse 25 though he knew only the baptism of John. So he knew enough about Jesus to teach about him accurately, but not enough to fully understand the good news that Jesus came to make possible. When Luke says that he knew only the baptism of John, it's likely that he's saying that he would have had the same information as a disciple of John who introduced the world to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So John knew a lot. But John died before the end of Christ's ministry on earth. So there's a lot John didn't know. So there's only so much that John could teach or someone who taught by John could teach Apollos. We don't know exactly what he didn't know. We know what he did know. But by Luke's account, he didn't have the whole picture. So here is that third point, a teacher taught. Would we all agree that a teacher is a better teacher if the teacher is teachable? Now, a teacher who's not teachable might be a good teacher, but he, he, he might not stay that way long, and he's limiting because nobody knows everything. So 
Here is a teacher taught, and if we're trying to feature this in our mind's eye, many scholars have said that Apollos was a better speaker than Paul. Paul's a better writer. And here he's being approached over the issue of his shortfall and his teaching, not by a professor, not by a pastor, not by an elder board, but by a husband and his wife who do what? Make tents. Now, Paul made tents. There's nothing wrong with making tents, but I don't know how you get to be where Apollos is by making tents, but there's something that tent makers know that he doesn't. So the possibility for things going dreadfully wrong are real. Who's got the boldness now? Free speech. I need to meet with Apollos because there's some things he needs to know. So here's the thing we take home with us. It's a question. It's a simple answer. Which is more important to the church? If the church had a cloning machine and you know, we put it right here, who would we clone? Somebody get us Apollos and let's make about six or eight of him. Is that what we would do? Or somebody go find Priscilla and Aquila and let's get five or six more of them. I need a Priscilla and Aquila. David needs a Priscilla and Aquila. Seth needs a Priscilla and Aquila. Anybody serves on this staff who's going to stand up here and rightly divide the Word of God needs a Priscilla and Aquila to make sure that we do it right. You need both. But I think we might botch this on a quiz if we didn't know the whole story. Priscilla and Aquila, who are they? Tent makers. Do we need those in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely we do. So how did he respond to this? Greatly. So much so that Luke skips over and just goes to the rest of his stellar career. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him when he got there. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That is what the book is made for. To show the scriptures are here to say that Jesus is the Son of God who's here for your sins. If you can pull that off, you've pulled off the purpose for which this book is written. So it's marvelous. And the last statement that I have written here, after which we'll get ready for communion. If this book, that is your Bible, is exactly what God wanted us to have, and I believe it is then let's make sure we preach it exactly as it's written and never stop until he calls us home. And thank him for Apollos' who can do it well, but double thank him for a couple who make sure he does it right and correct and have the guts to come behind him and say something maybe like, it wasn't what you said. It's just the way you said it. Some of the best help I've ever had is not with the message, but with my tone or with making people laugh too much, which is hard with y'all. Y'all make it so easy. You laugh at stuff I didn't mean to be funny. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
If this is God's word, exactly like he wanted us to have it, we should teach it exactly as it was given. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. This is that book that Paul wrote, and back to the place where he was so troubled. And this is where we'll find, if you want to follow along here in a few moments, when we read these passages that are so familiar to communion... And we're going to pray here in a moment. I'm going to ask that uh, we have a little bit of piano to give us something in the background while we take a few moments to pray privately, right where we are in our pew to get ready for this. There's a few things I will say typically before we begin um, taking for granted that most of us know what this is and have done this many, many times. But basically, it's a way Jesus asked us to remember what he did on our behalf. And he did it not unlike what he did with the Hebrews in the wilderness. He, he put together uh, something for them to do that involved tastes and smells and involved a gathered body. Communion is no different. In fact, they're kind of tied together a lot. But this is so we don't forget the business for which Apollos and Paul and these men left their homes to go tell people what they didn't know. And though uh, we are a church, if you're visiting with us, we're happy to let you uh, be involved with us. Some churches close this off to membership only, not, not here. The only thing we ask is, is really just sharing a warning that Paul gives us. If you don't understand these things, if this is new to you, that's fine. There's plenty of time to learn. But to do this unworthily, as Paul would say, would be wrong. Uh, and that would be doing it in, in a space of ignorance where this is new to me. And that would go with children who, who couldn't tell you what it means. And parents are best to discern whether or not that's the case. Or to do this with unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your hearts. That's where some churches will put someone under church discipline and, and bar them from this meal, um, which there seems to be some scriptural basis for. Here we, we leave that on you, and there's some time to pray, to confess things. Ask the Lord to bring to your remembrance, because what we wouldn't want to do is try to remember the way God asks us to remember the most costly sacrifice of all time while there's in our heart unconfessed sin that was necessary to be paid for in that way. So we do it cautiously. And in uh, one very old service order book that's still used and in print, it at the top, describes a communion service as a somber service. It's meant to think through. We're remembering basically the prelude to a funeral, which was the basis for the conquering of sin and is our hope of glory. After the funeral, we leave with a song, right? But with that said, um, I'll come back and finish